Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Howdy, folks. Michael here with the Reason RX podcast. Hope you are doing well. January 7, 2023. We're in the beginning of winter, December 21st. So it's just been like 28, um, what, about two and a half, three weeks. Um, December 21st, official astronomical winter. Although a lot of people think in terms of school and cold and stuff like that, what winter starts like in October or something, but astronomically December 21st. So hope you're getting out, being healthy, eat well, live well, get outside, exercise, read, make it a good day. Try to read some Aristotle and get a good exercise session every day and eat well. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, speaking of Aristotle. So, we're here today talking to Scott Aris, teacher extraordinaire again. Hey, Scott. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing all right. Got outdoors a little bit today. Went to a park I hadn't been to for a while. I was glad... There wasn't much trash out there to pick up. I guess people haven't been littering. I haven't been out there for months. So I don't know if people haven't been littering much or other people besides me have been picking it up or county people or a little bit of both. But um, picked up trash. Disappointed not to see any snakes today or so I could take some video and pictures or uh, see any birds or feathers. I was hoping to find some. Feathers from some predated birds. Predate is in biology. Yeah, you know, like a difference between a historian and a, and a biologist with the way they use predate. To a historian, predate means to be earlier in history. <laughs> but for a biologist, predate means like a hawk got a sparrow or something like that. <laughs> so, but we had around the park for a while. Cool. Um, picked up some trash. Fresh air, nature. Got my brain working. Um, I needed that outdoor time. It was like slow to get my brain working this morning. Took a little while to wake up, so to speak. But yeah. So you weren't able to get out and bike or exercise or anything today? Too busy? Not yet. Might do it after this. But I was thinking eat right, exercise, and read a little Aristotle. That's a pretty good recipe for (laughs) (laughs) Amen. Yeah. Truth. But, um, a lot to talk about, but let's see, I guess we're going to focus on 
Um, today, philosophy, teaching philosophy, philosophy, who needs it? Who cares? Scott's um, experience teaching philosophy to students, things like that. So, and no need to introduce Scott for people who are interested. It's in past episodes, so you can look up past episodes when he talks about his background and all that. Um, but how much have you taught philosophy in schools and is it in a philosophy course or in some other course or what? I, uh, according to my students, I'm never not teaching philosophy. So Sweet. I, I've been teaching for 33 years, originally history and psychology, but started a philosophy club right off the bat. Um, when I coached a swim team, we had team meetings every Wednesday and they were kind of philosophy sessions. So I'm handing out Aristotle or, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius and better people make better swimmers. So, um, I've been teaching it as a, a proper course in high school for, oh, 20, uh, 20, 25 years, somewhere in there. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And so people. I understand a little bit more. Some people, some will, some won't, some know already. There's misconceptions about some things like that. Philosophy is useless. It's for the weak or whatever. Um, people should learn more about Bruce Lee. If they think philosophy is useless, um, try to tell that to Bruce Lee. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't think the conversation would have gone too well in your favor. Um, for some people, you know, some people would have listened and learned. Um, but Bruce Lee knew one thing that made him great was having an idea about being integrated. We should have integrated body and mind. And he even said um, some people he knew, I forgot who they were, people he was training in Hollywood. Um, there was some like action TV, action movie star. You get this person and you get this person and you put them together and they would make the perfect fighter or the complete fighter. Because um, one was more actiony, needed to think more. The other thought more, needed to be a little more physical. But putting them together would have been good. And he, I don't remember what the deal was, but he studied philosophy in school, maybe college. I don't know if he got a degree. I forget in philosophy, but I know he studied it, took it seriously, studied it all his, all his life, was always studying it, thinking about it, recommending it. Um, you know, that's one thing that made him the person he was. You can't become great and original by just accepting things. Um, oh, let's just follow tradition blindly. You got to say, um, wait, wait, what is martial arts? What What's essential here? What does a person really need? That's like starting to look at the philosophy of martial arts and what we really need. And he says things like martial arts is nothing more than expressing yourself in motion. Sorry, but it's only someone who's philosophical who's going to say something like that and get it. Right. Or he'd say, sorry, he said things like at first a punch is just a punch. And then you study martial arts and blah, 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 blah. And then later again, a punch is just a punch. Philosophical. Go ahead. Well, you asked the, the great question, who needs it? And for <laughs> philosophy, the people who need it most are the people who think they don't. Amen. Yeah. And 
you have these people in your life. They have lots of strong opinions, hot takes on political events, and they're wholly unaware that, like you said, on the other side of that hill is another body of knowledge that you're uninformed by. So this is the whole point Socrates was making when he's talking about you have to know what you don't know. These people know so much and they have great certainty, but the, the field is so small and there's whole other areas of criticism that would inform them on those areas and they just don't know. And if you ask them, well, have you thought about this, you thought about that, they think you're attacking that little circle that they so adamantly protect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they right. got a far certainty, like to use the French word, fake certainty, just emotional. It's not a certainty that you'd get from doing a proof in geometry to like logically reach a conclusion and being certain about it. It's um, a way people use the word certain, you know, but very different kind of thing. Their emotional passion about something, that kind of so-called certainty versus the certainty that like Newton would have about what he did. But yeah. Well, and I may or may yeah. not be describing some of my lunch colleagues, but <laughs> <laughs> if the shoe fits, um, mm -hmm. but that, that passion so often comes from not being informed or only knowing <laughs> one aspect of it. And therefore mm -hmm. I'm going to hang on to that one aspect with everything I have. And we're all that way when we're young, you're just mm -hmm. supposed to grow it. Yeah. Yeah. And then. Philosophy helps, too, because it helps you be aware of that in yourself. Um, it's not just a weapon to use to beat up other people. It's something you got to, um, an idea you got to apply to yourself, too, like the great American philosopher Michael Jackson said. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look in the mirror and make the change, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were your degrees in, go ahead, what? Well, I'd just say real quick, that is one thing we've been talking about recently with some of my colleagues. Um, we are required by law in some of these courses to teach about bias and how to see bias and kind of try and undo it. And again, with certain people, you're like, are you aware that you're, um, you mm -hmm. know, we can say that humans have biases baked in, but once you do become aware of them, how to spot them, et cetera, you, you tend to become aware of your own biases fairly quickly and then you can guard against that yeah. but again some people haven't even made that first step yeah pretty sad um what did you study in college i originally thought i was going to go into biology and uh a mediocre professor and a horrible grad student teaching the lab quickly uh pushed me in a different direction i uh, ended up in history i've always loved history i've been good at history and that is definitely what got me to philosophy. So mm -hmm. when I taught world history, it was heavy on the philosophy from Greeks and Romans to enlightenment, to Eastern philosophy, et cetera. Um, and then psychology was my minor. So uh, that too kind of got me in the philosophy realm. So um, I now teach AP macroeconomics, AP psychology, philosophy, and my new course that I'm two semesters in is ethics, economy, and entrepreneurship. Um, did you take courses in history from the history department or like, did you take stuff from the philosophy department too? 
I was a history major, so that was my my heavy load. Um, I got into economics mostly through economic history, not economics courses proper. So again, I like that angle because really what it all is is the history of ideas. Mm -hmm. That's what I really like. In fact, you may know uh, Joan Norberg. He, um, popular intellectual, Cato Institute, does does videos. He has a master's degree in the history of ideas. Hmm. And that's that's a degree in Europe. And I'm like, oh, man, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's how I got in that direction. Yeah, I got a degree in philosophy in college, and always interested in it and continue study more, read more, and I can put some links in the description field if people are interested. I got some videos on YouTube. What is philosophy? Doing something, starting to think about. Karl Popper and why he's wrong and made some videos analyzing that talking about my thoughts, not like a lecture. Like I've sat down and thought about it for 500 hours and then wrote a one hour lecture out of that. But some stuff I already know, analyzing what he's saying, doing a little bit on that. You to do some on him and Thomas Kuhn and John Dewey and some others, but I'll put some links to some stuff I've done in there. So people can learn more about philosophy and what it is other than what we might say, or maybe we'll cover it all in here, but, uh, cool. Good stuff. Um, so yeah. And yeah, if I went back and got a degree, got a PhD, I'd want to do something like history and philosophy of science, focusing on like physics or biology or both, or, um, history of ideas. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Focus more on the logic and epistemology of things. Yeah, we're finishing right now. I've got a kind of three-day PowerPoint introduction to epistemology, and we just go through um, popular claims from how do we know that the Earth is round? And they're like, sir, why are you even asking them? Like, you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> flat. Prove it to me. And, of course, they've never really thought about it. I'm like, well, how do you know Japan's even there? Yeah. It can all be fake. You know, of course, I'll have a couple of kids that have been to Japan. But um, we go through the various ways that Erastanes proved it mathematically with geometry, how you can see a sailing ship go over the curvature of the yeah. Earth, yeah. airplane, and so on. And then we go on to Bigfoot, UFOs, Loch Ness Monster, some of these. Uh, and they just have a ball. Um, as But they're doing really good reasoning. How do you know something? Mm -hmm. uh, just saying that I know it, I feel it in my heart. Is that good enough? We talk about rain dances with, uh, you know, American Indian tribes. Did it really make it rain? And, of course, they come to the conclusion very quickly that no. Okay, the next question is, does the shaman doing the dance know that he's not making it rain? And if we're in the middle of a drought and the tribe is saying, you need to do the dance, you need to do the dance, I can't do the dance. Because if I do and it doesn't rain, I'm not going to be shaman for much longer. I'm going to get pushed off of a cliff or something. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's you two have been quarreling and the gods are not happy until you solve that, right? And that buys me a week. And one girl started to get a little bit offended. And she goes, this was just this week. She says, yeah, but because I think she thought I was making fun of it, which I wasn't. She said, those, those ceremonies could have different purposes other than making it rain. 
which is my point that mm-hmm. I'm coming to. And I said, oh, really? Tell me more. <laughs> so we arrive at the point that the real value of those was the social cohesion that that mm-hmm. creates for the tribe. And that has tremendous value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I did something recently about that, too. Um, thinking about the, some empirical and causal stuff in some traditions, like um, the Jews, Jews used to say, wash your hands, and that was ridiculed. People would say, I think the argument some people had, and I think Jesus' argument was maybe, my soul is not affected by my material self. <laughs> but, um, and so then some people wouldn't wash their hands and then some device discovers it again and he's ridiculed again. But what do we do now? You know, we need to wash our hands, you know, cause yeah. there's this, even though some people didn't know a long time ago, everything they would think, um, it's part of the tradition. You're violating God's will. If you don't explain it in some kind of way, um, or it was for purity of your soul. There might have been some stuff there that people got confused on and didn't see that there is still in the world some empirical thing that is being identified. Just because it's explained wrong doesn't mean the thing that they're trying to explain doesn't exist. Well, that's what we then talked about. Yeah. Is, uh, Ken Wilber, the philosopher psychologist, has this great phrase, transcend and include. So when we look at that rain dance, we can say, oh, that doesn't make it rain. Fine, we have transcended because we now know how it actually rains, but we still should include the good part of that. So we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a reason for these ceremonies and these rituals, etc. We talk about the Old Testament uh, prohibitions against food, um, whether it's Islam, Judaism, pork, shellfish, etc. There were probably good health and safety reasons that those became traditions to avoid. And do we have to honor those today? Well, that's up to you. But we transcend and include, and we don't ridicule them for saying, oh, they're primitive people. They had these silly rules. There was reasons those rules evolved. They were serving real social purposes. Yeah. And I think one thing that's interesting with the pork that they wouldn't have known <clears throat> is that, um, the, from what I've heard, the immune system of pigs is like the closest to any other mammal or one of the closest. And of course they wouldn't have known that, but that makes sense because if something can escape the immune system of a pig, then if our systems are so similar, then it would evade ours too. And we'd get sick. Um, Well, and, and dare I go down this path when we talk about, um, certainly women have been oppressed in history. And when we talk about dress codes and curfews and so on, um, there was a reason those were established. Um, the consequences were pretty severe. You didn't want to travel after night at dark. And if we can barely get by in our village, we're trying to avoid unwanted pregnancies, etc. So yes, in the modern era, we can uh, shed those for the most part. On the other hand, not everybody is civil. There's a decent reason, right? As I tell my high school kids, nothing good happens after midnight. And they freely admit, they're like, no, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so how long has it, you say you've been teaching, so you've had been doing philosophy clubs for basically over 30 years. What about how long have you been teaching philosophy as a class? Um, 
at my current school, 22 years. Uh, my school before that, I taught International Baccalaureate's course, Theory of Knowledge. Mm -hmm. So that was a philosophy course, mostly epistemology. I taught that for another probably five years. So 25, 30 years. Okay. As, so as a course. The one you're doing now is philosophy in general, not just theory of knowledge? Yeah, okay. Correct. Um, and it is, um, I created it so I can pretty much do whatever I want. Sweet. Um, yeah. Total freedom on the syllabus. And what is this philosophy stuff for like, let's say, you know, you got people listening who know in and out what philosophy is, people who listen, who are listening who have never heard of this stuff. And it's probably like, you know, in my past, it's probably the same with you. You're probably seeing, you know, you, I tell someone I've got a degree in philosophy. The next time I see them, they say, so did you say you have a degree in psychology? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like kind of funny, but it's not entirely, you know, it's not like I blame it on them. It's like the culture, the educational system. But it's yeah. interesting that it's just like some kind of abstract, airy-fairy thing having to do with like thinking or human mind or something or other. So they just kind of throw them together and they're not differentiated. But Well, what's, what's interesting about that now is everybody keeps saying, oh, STEM, we need more STEM and so on. Okay, fine. Great field to go into. Pays well. Um, but what tech firms are starting to hire a lot of is philosophers because they need all the big issues aren't aren't tech, right? Yeah, everybody there can code. Cool. Who's going to help us figure out who to ban on Twitter and who not to ban? Mm -hmm. Those are those are ethical questions. Those are metaphysical questions. Um, you know, other corporations, non-tech. That so many of the big questions are ethical. And, you know, the, the research on business ethics hasn't, hasn't gotten, uh, empirically has not shown it's gotten corporations real far. Um, so I really like the idea of mm. having a corporate philosopher whose job is to play devil's advocate and just sit there and say, have you thought of this? Uh, yeah. And, and, and who maybe doesn't have an MBA, right, that, but has a philosophy, psychology background. <clears throat> yeah. And... There is a major need in corporations, engineering companies, science companies, colleges, high schools to teach logic and good thinking skills. And I can put links to some stuff so people can get that. I know I'm not just running my mouth or uninformed or making it up. Um, people at Johns Hopkins University say so. And when they're working with their PhD students, they've noticed that PhD students come in not knowing epistemology or logic <clears throat> or how to think well. It comes up in the book range. And in terms of philosophy, here, um, quote, I fully agree with you about the significance and educational value of methodology, as well as history and philosophy of science. So many people today and even professional scientists seem to me like someone who has seen thousands of trees, but has never seen a forest. A knowledge of the historic and philosophic background gives that kind of independence from prejudices of his generation from which most scientists are suffering. This independence created by philosophical insight is, in my opinion, the mark of distinction between a mere artisan or specialist and a real seeker after truth, unquote. You know who said that? Oh. 
Yeah, of course. A quote out of nowhere. Who would? <laughs> I wish I had all these memorized too. In your position, I don't know if I'd remember it either. I'd go, it sounds familiar, it sounds familiar, but Albert Einstein. Letter to Robert A. Thornton, professor, physics professor at University of Puerto Rico, 7 December 1944. And again, it's like the thing we were talking about earlier before we started recording. I got this written down. <laughs> I couldn't remember it. I share this a lot. This is a great quote. So there, if people want to know why philosophy matters, there, there's one thing. But um, we were talking about philosophy and what it is. So what else do you have to say? Yeah, I would. Um, you mentioned logic. I took a logic course as one summer in, I got sophomore year of college. Um, took it at the local community college. Single best course I ever took in college. Hmm. It covered symbolic logic, informal fallacies, and formal fallacies. And man, in in one course, did you really, really straighten out your thinking? Yeah, but I'd like to do more logic courses too just a lot of people unfortunately don't get the value of it or they don't understand what logic is i mean naturally because like where are they going to learn i wouldn't know either unless i like dug into it but a lot of people think oh yeah you mean like symbolic logic i'm like gag no i hate symbolic logic gag me with the spoon i mean you know in some places it's like relevant and it's useful but you know i've done the little truth tables and when do i ever use that never you know or deduction you know it's kind of cool and I do recommend it. We need to know some of it. But a lot of that stuff, um, when am I going to use that? Never. You know, the more important thing is, what is the concept? How do we form them? What is the generalization? When are they right? When are they wrong? How do we classify? How do we define terms? What's an explanation? How do we use an analogy? How do we diagram an argument? Things like that are what I'm talking about. And a lot of people don't even get. It's like not even in their conception of logic unfortunately, but that's the stuff that would most help people. Um, well, I think there's ways to sneak it into other courses. When I taught yeah. world history, I used to do bonus questions were symbolic logic. And I, you know, taught them some basic stuff, gave them a little, you know, one pager on it. Um, in my psychology class, there is a section at the end of the chapter that goes into biases and a little bit about informal fallacies, hmm. like red herring and straw man. Okay, yeah. well, I didn't leave that as a little section. I blew it up and sweet up half hour of here's some more. Yeah, that's something that's very important initially. Knowing what reasoning is, you can't know unless you know what it's not and how you can go wrong. What are the ways I or some other people can go wrong? How, how, how should we be like, what should be on the, be on the lookout for? So yeah, fallacies are very important. As long as people apply it to themselves and not just use it as a tool to beat other people up. Well, and that, that's how I sell it is yeah. we're going to learn to argue not like a jerk. <laughs> yeah. all, all of these fallacies <laughs> are attempts at avoiding reality right? Or berating your opponent in avoiding the actual issue itself. So we can learn to not do these things, then we can have, you know, mature conversations. Yeah, which is important for thinking on your own, for talking to your friends, for helping a friend out if they're making a mistake in their thinking, helping people at work, helping family. Um, and it's not to say that you can't use the fallacy sometimes or ignore them because in some limited situations, some contexts, 
some people are just jerks and you got to tell them they're a jerk or insult them and that's just the way it goes. So there are very delimited contexts where insults are appropriate and called for. <laughs> but <laughs> like I think who is it? Um the English prime minister in World War Two, um Churchill. I kept thinking Chamberlain. It's like who is it? Yeah. Who is it? Chamberlain was getting in the way, but Churchill. Um the story is that um <laughs> some um member of parliament was like walking by him and they're in the hall somewhere, maybe walking up the stairs. You probably know the story. And yeah. she says to him, <laughs> um, this is not as eloquent as he tells it, but you, people get the idea. I'll put it in the description field if I have room and if I remember, but um, if I can find it. But um, so she goes by him and says, um, Churchill, like you're untrustworthy. You know, like you're always drunk. Are you ever sober? You're always drunk. And he says, I may be drunk, but, um, yeah, he says, uh, he says, madam, I may be drunk, but you are ugly and I shall be sober in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's why I stopped saying it. Cause I didn't want to like ruin it and make it less eloquent and stupid yeah. and sound stupid. Yeah. That's like, thank you. Well, yeah, there's that, that was awesome. yeah. was Oscar, Wilde, Oscar Wilde, maybe about. A gentleman never insults someone unintentionally. <laughs> so you're trying to not be insulting people, but sometimes people are going to earn one. Yeah. You got to do something like throw water in their face, wake them up, <laughs> or kind of stand up for yourself in a social context. Sometimes you just got to throw out an insult, let people get it and laugh. Okay, now we've got this established. Now let's like talk like adults and deal with the situations. Sometimes. No, that's that's a good point that sadly too many people walk on eggshells for their colleagues or even family and then everybody's walking on eggshells so as to not offend the irrational people and that's completely backward. Mm -hmm. They should be walking on eggshells because they're irrational. They don't have the self-awareness to see it, but we only encourage it and embolden it because we retreat well, we, you know, how they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how would you describe philosophy? What is it? Well, literally coming from the Greek, it means lover of wisdom, Philo and Sophia. And so, you know, easy sell for the high school kids. You tell them essentially we're all philosophers, right? If you signed up, you look, now, of course, a few of them signed up because their counselor threw them in there. They needed a, a semester slot. So I've got to win them over in the first 10 days. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm a philosopher, right? I, I guess we could say you have to have a PhD and so on. But frankly, you've seen some of those clowns, you know, yeah. with, with some of the absurd ideas they can come up with. But to me, it's just about loving knowledge and wisdom, logic, um, and pursuing that a methodical pursuit of trying to become a better thinker, a better reasoner, and a better understander. Yeah, and it's being it is more essential and true to it than having some PhD. Some of the people that have PhDs nowadays aren't even philosophers. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't love wisdom. 
It's kind of a attack on things and a hatred for human life and a hatred for thinking. Like one guy that was a, not exactly like that, but just to give another example of this or how someone could be, um, and not really a philosopher, one person, um, one philosophy professor at one college I went to, I swear, if he wasn't a professor in philosophy, he probably would have put, been put into in, an insane asylum. That guy was just like, it was pretty sad, just like out of his senses, you know? Um, but, and then philosophy was developed. That term was coined from, by contrast to the sophists. See, these people that were trying to, maybe they were kind of trained and educated and certified, so to speak. And they were teaching people just to like win an argument. And so then they got the idea of philosophy, someone a lover of wisdom, someone committed to the truth, someone married to it, in contrast well, to just being... I think of the sophists as kind of a sleazy defense lawyer, right, mm -hmm. who will teach you, you know, yes, logic and argumentation and rhetoric in order to say anything that needs to be said. Um, but to me, we got to pull back. That That's a nice skill to have. And frankly, I sometimes get kids in a course that are on the debate team and they lean a little bit in that direction. Mm -hmm. They think you can just strong arm argument people and the faster you talk, the better. And no, let's pull back and look at that idea for a minute. And is it ethical and so on. Mm -hmm. So what else do you say? So you say philosophy, love of wisdom. How else would you just describe it? Well, I the mission statement for my course is to think with clarity, to speak speak with precision, and to call things by their right names. So those are kind of three big goals. We're going to learn to, to, to read well, to actually pull out what the author is saying from the text, not what you think, what they're actually saying. Um, mm -hmm. To be able to write well, to speak well, there is a public speaking component in my course. And then to call things by their right names. Some, some things are what they are. And language has gotten very soft and mushy and Orwellian. In the past decade or three, or and, more, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only getting worse. And sometimes, and they really like it because there's free speech in there. You can kind of say what you want. We're obviously going to be civil. There's not going to be any name calling or that kind of nonsense. But um, it's okay. And they 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 almost self police and stop. And I'm like, no, say it. It's okay. Well, that's a good way to put it. It's like. You can say you can say whatever you want, but you have to know what you're talking about and express it clearly and fully and deeply and know the roots of it. <laughs> and, and it becomes very comfortable. I don't get any emails. I don't get people complaining, you know, this kid said something in the class and my kid was offended. In fact, it, it's the opposite in Good. that they, they become more comfortable. And when someone says something a little dicey or whatever, there's laughter, not not. Um, um, you know, clutching your pearls, and I can't believe that was said. Yeah. And you know, laughter and satire serves a purpose too. It's like, hey, bozo, just think about what you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, what's this epistemology stuff you're talking about? Well, getting them again to, you know, we tell them that epistemology is a branch of philosophy that deals with truth and validity claims and how we know things, how we know things are true, et cetera. 
and going through starting with some of those popular things it's like well we kind of you know they don't really know if bigfoot's real or not and and so on um but there's so many ways we can get there um now we we know who did the bigfoot video the guy confessed and you can find that video on youtube and so on but other ways we could know which i ask how else could we know and so they start theorizing and well there would be carcasses there would be a fossil record Right, a pack of wolves would have taken one down. Some big game hunter would have paid forty grand to come shoot one, and you know we go through some of these uh, a priori ways that we can sort through that there would be one. There's ten billion uh, phones on this planet. We have video of everything happening in live time except for UFOs, Bigfoot, and the Loch Ness monster. Some of which I wish it was in the same category. Some stuff that's been captured by video, I wish it was not. Um, yeah, yeah. Sure. You can't unsee some stuff. <laughs> but yeah. And, and so, one year, this was, I don't know, maybe ten years ago, some um some PhD maybe in anthropology, I forget now, but um they found a, a Yeti frozen in this block of ice or tundra or whatever, and they were gonna defrost it slowly so as to not to damage it. And kids are bringing in the article, sir, look, they found one, and I'm like, they didn't find one. And the next interview, the guy says, I stake my professional reputation on this. This will be a Yeti. Hmm. And they're like, sir, you don't have a PhD. You know, I was like, I'm still riding the bet. They did not find. It turned out to be a Yeti suit that someone had frozen in a block of ice. You know, the, huh. these hoaxes have been going on since the Middle Ages, from the bones of saints to bleeding statues in churches, and which we also look at. Bleeding statues is a pretty cool hmm. trick. Fairy pictures that even, um, yeah. what's his name? Arthur Conan Doyle fell for. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, what all is involved in philosophy? Well, um, let's scroll down here on my notes. Um, the, I mean, there are many, many branches of philosophy, but kind of the big ones are metaphysics, which deals with the nature of things. Um, so I ask them, what is the nature of a cheetah? Well, they know very quickly speed, right? If you're not a fast cheetah, you're a dead cheetah. Um, they die from starvation. So we will talk about what are the nature of certain things? What's the nature of a good pen? Well, it should write smoothly. It shouldn't blot, et cetera. Um, we can talk about, we do this one exercise on what makes a table a table, right? Define for me what a table. And they start, well, it has two legs. Well, I have a table with three legs. And then very quickly they realize it's not the number of legs that matter. It's the nature of the fact that it's elevated somehow. So it could be hanging from the ceiling, it could be risen from the floor, but it's elevated, it's flat. And so we get to the essence of what a table must be, not all of the things that a table could be. Then epistemology, how we know what we know, truth and validity claims, um, ethics, how we should treat each other, whether it be by law, custom, mores, etc. Um, political philosophy, extending ethics writ large to society. And then aesthetics is what uh, I usually will end up with, uh, the study of beauty and form. 
And I've done logic sometimes as a separate category, sometimes kind of infused throughout the course. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do your scope and sequence during the year? I, um, well, since I can do whatever I want, uh, I start in the ancient world and we start with uh, Socrates and Plato. Um, I sometimes have kids, you know, usually it's the postmodern kids who want to do the pre-Socratics because there's parallels there. And I'm like, well, look, we have a semester. So Socrates and Plato is and Aristotle. Um, we do the, the readings, uh, the euthyphro. So arguing about what makes something moral and is it moral because the gods love it or do the gods love it because it's moral? And then we apply that to daily life. Is the player out at first base because the umpire said so, or did the umpire say so because, right? And so is it the actual act or what the authority figure says? And then we translate that to school and so on. Uh, we do the credo where they spring or attempt to spring Socrates from his prison after he's been sentenced to death. And of course he refuses to leave. And then them arguing, well, what will people think about if I, you know, if I don't spring you, they're gonna think I didn't try, et cetera. And should he have left, should he have stayed and so on. Uh, we do the Plato's cave allegory, get into the divided line of knowledge where below the line is just illusion and, you know, social media. Everybody's profile picture picture is 20% more attractive than they are in real life. And really quickly, right. just so people are sure, it means illusion with an I, not with an A. Illusion yes. like deception, um, false yeah. appearance, so, things like that. So but go ahead. It's yeah. not real. That's not everybody's real life. That's the best parts of their life condensed for your consumption. Or if they're honest, like I know I made some fitness videos and deliberately I'll put things, I'll put fails in there. Yeah. Um, you know, like falling, slipping, somebody falling on my ass. <laughs> yeah, but like and Jackie Chan at the end of movies, Jackie Chan putting yeah. his feels in, but go ahead, sorry. Yeah, good. So yeah, Plato having no use for artists because he thought they distorted reality. Uh, so we talk about advertising, right? Are, is that real and, and, and so on. Uh, and then getting above that divided line using reason and logic and so on and reflecting on that doesn't mean you can't consume social media, but you do so as an educated consumer. And then probably your life's going to be better if you spend more time above that divided line than down in the gossip and the political opinions and all the bickering that's on Twitter and all that. And some people know Plato meant something different than that, but we can draw lessons from it as we talked about before. Um, Plato had a bad epistemology and was wrong, but we can still get the, and I wouldn't go with his idea of a divided line, but what Scott's saying, what we've talked about in the past, you can interpret it and draw some lessons from it that are still relevant. And well, yeah, that's, that's the valuable part to me. So his further conclusion is therefore the people who get out of the cave are philosophers and they should be kings or until kings become philosophers. And then he sets to lay out a very dictatorial type society with these cognitive elites ruling the world. No, 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 that's that's not a great, uh, but, but that's the useful part to me. So then we go to Aristotle, um, look at his four types of character and character development from doing bad reflexively to learning that you're doing bad, but you want to do better 
to generally doing better, to then actually getting pleasure out of doing good and being virtuous. Um, we spend some time on the golden mean, um, that there is an appropriate amount of something. So anger, Aristotle said, is not. One second. Bad. It just occurred to me that, hmm, given my last name and stuff, that's something I could have as a name for like a math tutoring company or something, the golden mean. Because <laughs> <laughs> my name's gold. It's like golden and mean is like an average and mathematical thing. And, hmm, never thought of that before. Interesting. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> And so I have them actually look up these terms in dictionaries, and I have about five or six different brands of dictionaries in my class hmm. and make uh, – because some of these dictionaries you look up, this one dictionary had courage defined as the absence of fear. Hmm. That's a horrible definition. Mm -hmm. Courage is you're afraid and you do it anyway. Yeah. So um, steak, have, steak is the absence of bananas, right? Yeah. <laughs> So they come up with hybrid definitions. They they steal the best parts from each dictionary and put them together. Man, they have written some really. We may have to make our own dictionary. Uh, cool. On these nice. After yeah. This. Cool. Um, and then we finish up the ancient world with uh, Stoicism. So Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, a little bit of Seneca, um, the Epicureans, and then Plutarch's got a little essay on how a man may be benefited by his enemies. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. So it's a one semester course or a whole year? It is. It's a one semester. So huh. that um, that has us mostly through the first nine weeks. At that point, I used to go into the theodicies, the arguments for the existence of God, uh, the cosmological, ontological, Pascal's wager, etc. I've kind of gotten away from that in that... Um, None of them are particularly convincing. Like you see them, you're like, okay, I understand where they're going, but it's not like anybody's brought to the Lord that way or loses faith because they find arguments unconvincing. And so I just felt like I was maybe wasting a little bit of time there. So we go into um, the problem of evil, which was always on the back end of these theodicies. And if God is omnipotent, omnibenevolent, why would evil be in this world? And we try and start small. They always instantly want to go to the Holocaust or, you know, um, but we try and start with smaller things and work our way up. I have them read uh, Dostoevsky, an excerpt from the brothers uh, Karamazov, where the brothers are arguing about. And there's a particular scene in there that is just pure human evil. Um, and we talk about suicide bombers and, and school shooters, random actors, why they do these. And I've got research on that. So we kind of dig into uh, serial killers a bit, that kind of stuff. And they find that fascinating. And that uh, that pretty much wraps up the first half of the course. So nine weeks on Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And then nine more on and evil. Stoics and Plutarch. And then, yeah, into evil. And so that's 18 weeks so far? Yes. And I should say the other thing, and we talked about this in a previous episode where they're uh, doing a writing assignment called Syntopicons. So they get a trio of topics to choose from. This week, we just um, picked habit, customer, knowledge. And I talk about five minutes on each of those to give them ideas. And then they pick something and they're doing a one typed page on that word what it means, here's why, you know, 
and they have to come up with their own take on it. And um, it's a really good exercise because it's extremely abstract. They have to get it down to something concrete, support it, defend it, and then they eventually read it to the class and defend mm -hmm. it. So that's that's what takes up the rest of the time that. And then we end the semester, I tell them, I thought it would be fun if we did an old school midterm cumulative exam. And they, you know, they're just like, oh yeah, that sounds like great fun. So it's a two day test, it's open note. And I tell them, you're not really gonna need your notes because this is all in your head. And then it's just all the stuff we've covered. They get a choice of short essays, there's some medium essays and then one and say long, longish essay at the end of varying point value. And it's all the stuff we've covered. And they've got to explain what Plato meant or explain Aristotle's theory of how you improve your character, right? In a third of a page and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is two days of them writing from bell to bell. Um, but it's, I mean, that's a real college style test instead of memorize and regurgitate multiple choice. How many? Tests you have to grade uh, students. The class for a long time was 18 to 22, which was a nice size, especially if we're going to do a Socratic seminar and put our desks in a circle. It's now, I think I've got 31. <laughs> and so I've had to start doing the Socratic seminars over two days. And I take half of the class on one day while the other does a reading assignment, do the other half the next day uh, so that everybody has enough time to speak. Um, so yeah, 31 and uh, frankly, they're not hard to grade. Um, they do quite well on it, uh, cool. to maybe, maybe a little bit to their own surprise. Cause they, they, they walk in and just intimidated thinking they're going to get crushed and find out that they know this stuff better than they thought they did. Yeah. Sometimes I wish students weren't so abusive to teachers. If they just do it well, you could just give everybody a hundred and it'd be easy, but they got to like play around with you make it hard to grade things. You got all these different grades, 76, 92, 84. You got to see what's right and wrong. They're so difficult. Just do it right so we can give everybody a hundred and it'd be so much easier. Well, I think this too is the value of doing a lot of short answers, short essays is, and I always liked essays better. It gives you the opportunity to show what you do know more so than did you memorize this particular trivia point that happens to be in this multiple choice question. And yeah. Lord knows they've done enough multiple choice K through 12. Yeah. Uh, is this stuff connected in your thinking so you can write about it and think about it? Or is it just some like isolated little memorized idea that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with whatever else you think and what's good, what you're going to think about or do in the future? Yeah. So the, the next nine weeks then, um, the three syntopicon topics to start off are citizen, sin, and courage. And then we go into um, the Renaissance, touch a little bit on the late Middle Ages, but Renaissance and Enlightenment and what was humanism, um, Mirandola's essay, Oration on the Dignity of Man, and look at that massive shift from God being at the center of everything to man and, again, the Renaissance. And then into modern political philosophy with Machiavelli. Uh, they always love to learn about Machiavelli. And then go into Hobbes' Leviathan, John Locke, and uh, Nietzsche. So we spend about two, two full days just on the PowerPoint alone on Nietzsche, hmm. going through God is dead, um, which is, was, was 
not a celebration. It was a lamentation. It was, even though he was an atheist, it was God had been the central organizing force of everything, social, governmental, etc. He saw that that was dying in Europe and he feared what will replace it. What new festivals of atonement, he said, will we come up, right? And then if you want to plug in modern religions, whether it's environmentalism or wokeism or whatever, these things almost have liturgies, priests, sacrifices, etc. Or for some people, it's politics. That's their driving center. And then we go through Apollonian and Dionysian energy, master versus slave morality. Or one thing... Um... Some things that replace it for some people too, um, some people get a better idea, are um, communism in Russia, communism in China, Nazi Germany, fascist Germany, um, communism in the Khmer Rouge. Um, there you have massive um, religious ceremonies and sacrifices and asking, yeah. like demanding atonement and things like that. If so, those are more examples so people can really, maybe that'll drive it home for people, some people a little bit more. I'm finishing a podcast listening to it about a, a guy who actually went through Maoist struggle sessions in, in communist prisons. And wow, interesting. It is brutal. And mm. they will get to you at some point. I mean, day one is they put you in an 8 by 12 cell with eight other people in it already who are in there, who throw you on the floor, and for an hour, they just break you down. They're mm -hmm. yelling at you, they're telling you you need to confess, etc. Well, this goes on for multiple hours, then it goes on for days, they don't let you sleep, then they start adding handcuffs and chains, and it just goes on and on until you denounce yourself, your friends, and see the light. Hmm. Wow. So, um, that, the modern age, I call it, we finish with Albert Camus' essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, in which he argues that we must, must find Sisyphus happy, which seems absurd on the premise, but um, his argument is that if we don't find him happy pushing that rock, pursuing his destiny, then life is too absurd to contemplate. And I think Camus gets a nice shoehorn in between the nihilism of, well, burn it all down because life is absurd, and why do we struggle so much? So we talk about find your rock in life, learn to love your rock, push your rock, be happy to push your rock. We've all got burdens, um, but when you look back, it's a pretty good life. Or as they say life. in the military, embrace the suck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or as the Army Rangers say, nothing sucks enough. Yeah. Right? Could be worse. Yeah. Could be snowing. The only hard day was yesterday, or the only easy yeah. day was yesterday. And I actually have a special forces wall in my classroom where I hang quotes like that, hmm. right? Navy SEALs and Army Rangers. We talk about, well, guess what? There is a mentality that will get you through this stuff in life. So or adopting that. Yeah, like... um. Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Yep. I, I give him a little bit of Viktor Frankl. Cool. Um, and then we finish with, um, yeah, the, let's see. Oh, there are other um, syntopicon topics at this point are democracy, tyranny, and liberty. And, and we do those when we're um, talking about the problem of evil. 
And then we finish with Eastern philosophy. So we do Buddhism. Um, sometimes if I have time, I do Confucianism. Um, but definitely we always do Buddhism. And that leads us into Zen Buddhism and then Taoism. Uh, and at that point, we're, we're nearly finished with the course. <clears throat> Our final exam is um, <clears throat> excuse me. the great uh, short movie, 23 minutes, called 2081. And it's a film adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron, <clears throat> a society in which everybody would be equal. So the strong had to wear weights. The intelligent had to have earpieces that the government blasted various sounds in so that they couldn't think and the beautiful had to wear masks. And so we watched that one day, the next day is a Socratic on a Socratic seminar on how much equality do we want in society? Hmm. And, it, and at what cost? And then that ends the semester in the course. Hmm. You teach it twice a year or just once? Yes. Yes. Cool. How did you decide upon those particular <laughs> philosophers? Um, I know Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that's pretty much a given. But then there's other people you could do after that. And how did you decide on those people and why? And Well, if I'm being entirely honest, a lot of it is stuff I like. Um, mm -hmm. I think also a lot of it is stuff that, you know, I, I have stolen every... Uh, philosophy professor syllabus online that I can find and I sort through I go to philosophy lectures at local universities I always stay after and try and talk to them and say what should I cover what hmm. would you like a student to have covered well first of all all they tell me is they can't believe there's actually a philosophy course in high school I'm hmm. like cool cool let's get back to the syllabus what should I, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, sure. I know you have limited time I need to hear and um they never say anything good. They're like, well, I, you know, if a kid could write a coherent paragraph, I'd be happy. Okay, cover that. Um, and they basically say, if they've read a bit of Plato and Aristotle and so on and have an interest, then so. That's too um, bad. The so, standards are so low. They just want a coherent paragraph or the products well, of things are so low. But I also look at their syllabi and my syllabi is <laughs> much broader than theirs. They, they typically will have like six things. And, and granted, they're going to go deep. I understand that. Yeah. But we're, we're a survey course. Um, and I do kind of want to plug in history. Like a lot of this history they may have covered, but maybe forgotten since their sophomore year. Now, I do get criticism sometimes from the postmodern kids that I haven't done enough of postmodernism. And uh, Camus, you can throw in that category. Nietzsche, if you want. Uh, we have sometimes done Sartre. Uh, a little bit of Foucault, and I do have some stuff on that. So what I'm maybe contemplating, like one kid said, why don't you do one nine weeks on ancient world and then one nine weeks on the modern world? And I might, but I've spent the past two years creating summer school curriculum because I did it for the first time, and then for that new course, Ethics, Economy, and Entrepreneurship. So I kind of have all that down. Now I can maybe get back to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Yeah, a lot of things you could do, a lot of options, a lot of variation. Um, so they could also, I mean, there's all things, other so-called criticisms they could do. Why don't you do more of this? Well, why don't we do more of this and that? And 
epistemology and ethics and so on and so forth. What about Descartes and Spinoza? And, and I used to do Descartes, but just for the modern teenager, he's historically important. But for a high school survey class, he's not. <laughs> so you try to do stuff that will be relevant to the students in their lives, whereas like Descartes wouldn't be as relevant? Right. And um, one, this is not an AP course. It's not an advanced course. So I get kind of half advanced students and half just regular students. Um, and I actually last I, I taught it way back when and I actually killed the course off because I was getting nothing but kind of low end kids that weren't there because they wanted philosophy. They were there because their, uh, their counselor, they needed a class to fill. And then the other kids would be these kids who had already read everything Foucault wrote or Derrida. And so they wanted like grad level postmodern and it just didn't work with those. So I killed it off and then I brought it back. Um, and it's, it's worked out better. It's, um, and it's growing. So cool. And yeah, though, so just to put an explanation point on it, one thing I've noticed is a lot of who we cover from you know the Stoics to to Buddhism, life is suffering, etc. To Camus, we joke that uh, the course should be called a course in suffering, <laughs> and uh, our motto is learn how to suffer well. Right, life is hard. You're gonna suffer. That's okay. Mm -hmm. You're gonna suffer well. Yeah. Cool. Um, how much do the students get out of it? They tell me they like it a lot. They they get very engaged. Um, I tell them it's AP level thinking without the AP level workload. So they do get a decent amount of class time to get most of it done. So, you know, if you're kind of productive and so on, you're not going to be burdened with a lot of homework. Um, a lot of kids that are loaded down with advanced courses will take this because they want to break from reading 40 page chapters out of college books. Um, and then I think the best two is repeat customers, right? That I have, I teach four different courses. And so I have kids that will take me for two. I've got a bunch this semester on their third course with me. I have two girls that are now on their fourth course. So I've had them for two years straight. Cool. Um, so you keep the work pretty much in class. You don't give them much homework, you say? Yeah, you know, the reading, because we read and annotate, and usually, you know, I'm not going to hit them with a big book. It's going to be, here's a two to six page article, maybe a 10 page. Um, so if you read reasonably fast and you you get most of it done in class, you may have to finish it off at home. Um, we get started on the writing in class. The first writing assignment, we take a lot of time because I want to make sure I work with every kid and they have a solid thesis that's defendable. Once they start to understand that process, we go a lot faster and they do a bit more of that at home. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to, they don't, you, have, you don't have them write like one page essays very often or 30 page well, essays or anything. Those ones have it custom knowledge, et cetera. We, we started in class. Um, I have to approve their thesis before they can write so that they're not spinning their wheels, writing a bunch of garbage. Um, and also so they actually have a thesis because they, they have a tendency to write half of a thesis to which I say, so what? You've made a claim, so what? What's the point? What's the take home for your listener? And they're like, oh, 
And so then they get a complete thesis. Um, and yeah, they, 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 those are typed, so they type them at home. But I've kind of got a sheet that's laid out with a word web. It's got like squares or, or rectangles all down the page. Word web, here's your thesis, here's your theme. Here's the quote you got from all the quote books I have in class. So someone famous who's going to support what you're saying, you're going to work that quote in. And once they have that down, well, typing, it's not that hard. And then they bring me a typed final copy, one page, and I'll do an edit for every kid and then give it back to them. And so once we've done those a couple of times, by the end of the course, they are writing solid type one pagers where they make a claim, support it, and they can defend it in class. A lot of times that's all you really need. Some of the 30 page stuff, you do that, they're just gonna start BSing. Maybe when you're a PhD, you can write something that long, but a lot of people in high school, they're not ready. And as people well, say, as, as you know, the old joke goes, a writer writes a letter to someone else, yeah. Sorry to send you this 30 page letter. I didn't have time to make it shorter. <laughs> yeah. My thinking is if you can write one clear, coherent page, you can write a book. Yeah. That's all you need. So there's no reason for us to write a seven page paper. Let's, let's get good at writing and getting ideas across. Yeah. One page, three page, five page. Yep. Just learn to throw the crap out and just you can, if you write well and think well, you can say so much in one page. Yeah, I'll put a bracket around what I call dead limbs. <clears throat> and I ask, is that doing any use, useful work? Is that advancing your thesis? And they're like, no, take it out. Right? You're just filling space. Yeah. And they got to learn to do that. I remember your, decades back, it's like there's something in there and you like it. And it's really hard, but you just got to embrace the suck and take it out. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be stoic, man. <laughs> well, that's why writing a letter to the editor for the newspaper, they typically want maybe 400 words, sometimes 150. Mm -hmm. Try writing something in 150 words. That's nothing. <laughs> but yeah. it's, a great, it's a great exercise. Yeah, something that's really good, deep. Um, what grade levels do you teach? Um... So the AP courses are supposed to be junior or senior. A year or two ago, they made a decision that we were like, we were somehow keeping talent out of AP courses. So they're now letting sophomores, I probably have seven, eight sophomores in my macroeconomics class. Hmm. But that class is really almost like a sophomore level college class. So you're telling me at 14 or 15, you have the intellect of a 19 year old. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, now, so far, so good. I, you know, not the stereotype, but I've gotten some just quiet, studious Asian sophomores. I've gotten some Asperger sophomores, and they've gotten very high grades. Hmm. I do worry if we just open the floodgates, some of those kids just aren't ready for that level yet. Yeah, we shouldn't allow too much, but don't want to forbid some stuff. I know I've worked with the kid in the past. Um, I worked with them on some high school physics. Um, and I know he didn't get a lot of what I said, but if he's not going to get it from me, unfortunately, not because I'm a genius, but just because it's not out there, but I go over a lot of stuff and give him notes just so he can have it for the future. And I'll even tell him, um, you might think you're understanding this, but you're not look at it again in the future. But yeah. he was 12 or 13 and he was already doing calculus. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, there's like 
depending on the subject and stuff, it's like. Yeah, and last semester I had a sophomore girl in philosophy, and she was brilliant and, and confident. And she mm-hmm. took on the seniors with argumentation, and she hmm. held her own easily. So Beautiful. Nice. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, like, you know, there are the Marie Curies and James Clerk Maxwells and Hypatias out there. Man, I wonder what her, like Hypatia? I wonder what she was like when she was young or um, yeah. what's her name? Um, the poet, ancient Greece, Lesbos. Lesbos, yeah. Um, oh, wow. Begins with an S. Um, not Sophia. Um, yeah, I have a slide on her. I, and I keep her. thinking Sisyphus. You said S. Sisyphus, no. Dang, now I got that stupid name. I can't think of her. Um, but yeah, um, I wonder what she would be like when she was that age. Be fascinating to have someone like that in class, man. Are you looking it up? Sappho, that's it. Oh yeah. You pronounce it Sappho or Sappho or? Sappho, S-A-P-P-H-O. Yeah. Yeah. Estimated IQ of around 180, 190. Huh. Wow. So. Amazing. But, um, Well, that, that's what's ironic about they've made this rule change now fine. I can remember a decade ago when I had a kid who was clearly a sophomore. If I had to guess his IQ, I'd say around 160, extremely bright. I tried to get permission, wrote the principal letter, counselor, for him to be in uh, my AP course because they only let juniors in, and they refused. Hmm. And I'm like, here is talent that you are holding back. And then two years later, oh, let's change the rules. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What happened to the whole? And that's that's what's bad about bureaucracy right there. It doesn't care about the kid. It cares about the system. Yeah, that's a shame. So when you think students are ready for philosophy, like cognitively, age, developmentally? Well, um, you know, I think any teacher or any parent can can be philosophical with a kid to some extent. If I had to try and kind of make it chunkable and consumable, I would love to see elementary schools teach mythology. Um, I think there is so much richness in mythology and so much about human nature that can be learned. I mean, um, it's a course. I know. I mean, continue, well, maybe but, not, maybe but... Maybe it's not a course, but maybe it's, it's you know... But I mean, like... Philosophy, I agree, should be all throughout school in every course. But and continue on that if you would please. The mythology. That's still interesting to discuss and all that. But and then, you know, but my question poorly worded, but what I meant was philosophy as a subject of study and as a course. But what are you saying about philosophy and everything? Well, all right, so um then middle school I'd love to see logical fallacies, a little bit of informal and formal Amen. logic being you know, deductive and inductive reasoning, we all use those every day, but once you know the name for it, you can start consciously seeing, and then your reasoning improves. And how to do it right. I always say if uh, it's an educational crime and malpractice that students get out of high school but don't know the difference between induction and deduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, a lot of teachers don't either, unfortunately. Well, you know? And that's yeah. not, of course, I'm not knocking them. I'm just knocking. Yeah. It's a sy- systemic thing. I didn't know either. So if I was going to knock them, I'd be knocking myself. But um, 
Well, and my psych chapter has a small thing, and they mentioned deductive and inductive, and I'm like, fine, let me turn that into 22 slides and let's spend a little time here. Yeah. But go um, ahead. So fallacies and... And then, and then by high school, I think students really do have a love of the abstract and the conceptual. Um, I, I told you in a previous podcast, my doctor asked me, don't you think philosophy is wasted on the young? And I got a new doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So no, I don't think it's wasted on the young. I think they're the ones maybe that have an open enough mind to bat these ideas around. Again, the adults are often set in their ways and they, you know, have built walls around their beliefs. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And then if you do as, I forgot who it says, some priest or saint, um, give me a child when he's three and I can make the man or something like that. Yeah. Um, And so that can be done in a good way or bad way. But yeah, you do it in a good way. You can expose them to ideas and being reasonable and appreciating and, you know, recognizing there's different things out there and you can entertain the different idea and still disagree with it or find it evil, but, um, you know, pop off emotionally and, um, go all like, um, Salem witch trial on him. But, uh, still it would, they should be trained to be alert for different ideas and new ideas and appreciate them and not like turn off as a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, that's a big value of that stuff. But, so yeah, it's like, then to be a better teacher, someone needs, teachers need philosophy, an awareness of it, wisdom, that's what it should be about. Um, That's like one of the functions, like the purpose or function of an adult relative to youth is to impart wisdom in good traditions and teach them to think for themselves to maintain and reinforce the good traditions and then get rid of the bad or alter some of the others. And this is, you know, you mentioned teacher training or, or that adults don't know philosophy or deductive inductive. That would be great teacher training. Like here's philosophy one-on-one for teachers. Here's cool stuff for you and your kids. Here's some handouts. These are takeaways and you can use in your class. And then you plug in your particular content to how that works. Amen. So what do you think, at what point do you think students need to be at their cognitive level and all that to take a philosophy as a course? Because, you know, some high school kids, they'll be in high school and they're never going to be ready for it. Some might be ready for it in eighth or ninth grade. But um, what do you think? Um, It's been a while since I dug into this. I want to say in the UK, they have a very strong middle school philosophy program. Hmm. So they start it pretty early and it's all age appropriate kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's probably a good area to start. Now, as far as getting the actual course in, that may be challenging. I think it's easier to get them put into high schools because you do have social studies electives. Um, so to me, it's like get the low hanging fruit, get them in high schools first. Then we can worry about where is the ideal age. Um, but I think also a lot of that stuff can be phased into either social studies courses like I did through history 
or through English. Um, my sister uses a fair amount of stuff as writing prompts. Hmm. And cool. she's not trying to teach philosophy or economics per se. To her, they're interesting human stories. Mm-hmm. And then the kids write about them. Yeah, and digging into philosophy, you can't do until you're older and you're an adult, but um, saying philosophy shouldn't be taught at all, you could apply that argument to physics or math as well. Kids yeah. aren't ready to study calculus, so don't teach them math. Well, there's more to math than calculus. They're not ready to study quantum mechanics. They can't get it, so don't teach them physics. Well, there's more to physics than that. They can learn about levers and machines and force and heat and develop level by level to get deeper and deeper and start connecting heat to the atomic theory to light and electromagnetism and stuff later on um in math you teach them obviously arithmetic and then algebra and then calculus and similar with philosophy it's like um sorry but kids are concerned about relationships and honesty and friendship and so as you say you make it age appropriate and you're teaching them some philosophy well, it's the human condition. Yeah. Kids are into that. And, you know, as I tell them, I said, look, this is all stuff they read in college, but they keep you from the good stuff. Like, let's look at it now. And as we read through some of these stories, you know, they really connect or they really like it. Um, and, it, you know, none of it's dry or boring. That's what textbooks are for. Hmm. <laughs> um. What are some things you do to really sell your students on philosophy and keep them interested? I don't really sell. Um, we have a course fair where I could go and do posters and meet and greet kids, and I don't. I but just, I mean, end of class, yeah. Yeah, sure. yeah, but I'm, I'm yeah. going to scale down to that. Okay, cool. I, I rely on word of mouth, and if 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 I do the class well, you're going to enjoy it and you're going to tell your friends, yeah, that's a cool course. And so, again, I measure a lot by repeat customers. Um, a lot of the kids will stay after class or come in before school and want to talk more about the stuff. Or can you steer me toward books? I've got about 600 books in my class. So I kind of loan those out to kids. Um, and it just, you know, it just kind of becomes a self-feeding community. I think also, you know, I have a passion for it. I, I tell them I'd be reading this stuff if I weren't teaching this course. So I think that comes across in how I engage with the kids and, and teach the class. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting and relevant and valuable enough to kind of sell itself. Just like it'd be kind of like saying, if you do it right, like, how am I going to sell Harry Potter? Are the kids going to like it? Yeah. You know, of course they're going to like it. It sells itself. Um, and philosophy wow. came up because people want to know about how to live better and it's relevant. How do we know? You, you got a friend like who's, you got someone in, in your grade who's like lying about you. Like, how do we deal with that? Is it the truth or not? And like, what do we do? And how do you convince them? And that's philosophy. You know, libertarians like to say, if you can't sell freedom, you suck. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you can, you know, philosophy is so much about the human condition. We're all going through it. It should be relatively easy to relate to. And again, if you can't sell that, then 
I, I get it if you're a brand new teacher who got thrown in that course and you've never read any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you have read it, I think it's pretty easy to see the value and, and make those connections. Yeah, especially if you maintain contact and experience in real human life and you haven't gotten corrupted by some so-called modern philosophy, which isn't even really philosophy anymore. Because <laughs> there's neither wisdom nor love in it. Well, and we dig into that. I'm In my new course, we're going to do a deep dive on the... Uh, utopian socialists in the 1830s and then into Karl Marx with scientific socialism and a bit of Hegel and, and all of that. So uh, we'll go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you do about keeping your own perspective out? There's some idea that you know is good and you really want to say this is good, but how do you stay yeah address that and say, this is what I believe and this is what you should do, but stay objective, you know, and not be authoritarian and drive it into them or like make them accept it because like they're cowering or whatever. That's really important. There is nothing worse than a politicized classroom. And um, however good or bad I may have been at that when I was young, I know I don't do that now. Yeah. Uh, I've seen colleagues who they think they're objective and they just, you look at some of their slides and they have these thinly veiled shots at certain political parties. Mm-hmm. I make any political reference, say in ethics or whatever, I make sure I get one example from each party mm-hmm. and there's no shortage, right? It's not hard to find examples. So if a kid ever says, well, I didn't like you criticize so-and-so, you know, I'm that party. It's like, what was the count? It's like, what do you mean? I literally count to make sure that my, <laughs> yeah. my examples are even. It was three to three, so you don't get to complain. Um, but I also distinguish between positive and normative statements, which is the technical term in economics, is between fact and opinion. And so I and I, I tell those, them this in the beginning of the course, that I'm going to say, in my opinion, or it seems to me that that's opinion, you don't have to agree. And if you ever catch me saying something that sounds like fact, right, or, you know, make sure I'm not pushing my opinion on you, push back, and I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, I tell them that my job, my goal is to not make their mind mirror mine, right? Whatever you are, because I get kids who are communists, which I abhor that philosophy, Um, I'm not trying to convert that kid. I tell you, I'm I'm trying to make you a better version of yourself. Now, if through the teaching you come to realize you're holding some bad ideas, well, good for you. You grow. Um, but we don't have to agree. And I actually like those kids who have radically different philosophies from mine because they're, you know, if they're not intimidated, they're going to engage and push back. And now we get some really interesting conversations. Mm-hmm. I once had a class where like every kid kind of thought like I did. And I'm like, well, this is boring as hell. <laughs> So yeah. I'm going to be the contrarian now and just start arguing some other stuff. And one thing, like you say, if as long as the teacher's being consistent and doing on principle in their own thinking as a habit automatically, what you were saying earlier, you think you know something you don't. You think you know the earth is round? No, you don't. Prove it. You just memorize it. If someone's like that, then you're that way with the students. Um, and so they say something that, that you agree with. Um, you know, I don't care. Like when I, when I, I don't care if it's math or whatever, if someone gives me an answer, I don't care if, what they're saying. I say, why is it right? 
And it's interesting that I know that they don't have teachers that do that. And that's not common because when I say that, what is their automatic response? What did I do wrong? <laughs> I yeah. didn't say you were wrong. I just I, want to know if you know what you're talking about. Are you I, memorizing I, like a parrot? Are you listening to me? Or do you know that math answer on your own? Or same thing in philosophy. I don't care what you say. Do you understand this? I love doing that. When they say the correct answer, I kind of look at them. And, <laughs> and you see the, see the look on their face. I'm like, are you sure? And, you know, the self-doubt. Look, what do you mean you should? Well, after a while, they start to catch on. And they also yeah. start to get confident. They say, Good. yes, yeah. I'm sure. And I'm like, how do you know? And then they say it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the important thing. That's what I tell them. So much fun. <laughs> and like, and that's what they're going to need when they get older, you know? It's like so sad that a lot of them go into the into life you got this unknown you got to make decisions it's like you're um someone 500 years ago sailing off on a ship to some own land unknown land you are on your own you are on a ship in an ocean going where no one has gone before you have no contact with anybody else no hospitals no cell phones no helicopters no airplanes you got to navigate on your own and to send them off into life without or into work without knowing how to really understand something. Understanding is not getting a good grade on a test. I work hard in all different subjects to try to let them know, you know, this again, it's like applying philosophy beyond it. When do you really understand something? Because that is so vital and critical to survival. That is a survival skill and work and life that they need in the future. And you said... That's how it is in real life. I like to um, argue against them like, sadly, adults do uh, in real life today. So, <laughs> so, so arguing, you know, yeah. quarreling. The kid, the kid says, no, the, the Native American dance didn't make it rain. I'm like, tell us more about why you hate Native Americans. And then, <laughs> yeah. you, know, or you wanted to chop down a tree. Tell us more about how you hate the environment. You don't want to raise minimum wage. Why do you hate the poor? And they're shocked at first, but that's sadly how so many adults argue. And you need to be ready for that. You're going to have clowns in college. They're going to throw that in your face. You need to be used to hearing that and coming back with something. Amen. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It's not even arguing, properly speaking. You know, I know it's fine to use a word is, you know, I know we agree. I'm just expanding for other people. But just like with the idea of um, certainty that we used earlier. Um, like, and it's even a Monty Python sketch I'll have to put, uh, for people to watch. It's like someone comes in for an argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I won't say anything. I'll just let people watch, but, um, about what an argument is and what it is not. So yeah. Um, great. Let me put in a Monty Python, but yeah. Um, and one thing to do. I strive for um, a thing to do in teaching the philosophy for whether you agree or disagree with something would be remembering like Dennett's rules of argument. I post that a lot. Facebook, LinkedIn, a lot of stuff. I like to talk about it. So awesome. So he says, and I'll put links to this here in the church and field so people can like look more and dig into it more on their own something man we need so much in our culture and world but rules of criticizing with kindness and really how to argue how to really engage 
you must, before you criticize, you can't say anything against someone until you first state what they said in terms so vivid and clear that the other person would go, thanks, I should have thought of putting it that way. Yeah. Then, number two, I might not have the order right, but number two, you got to state how you agree with them, especially if it's something that's not common knowledge. Like you can't say, oh, we both like to wear blue shirts, but um, something relevant. Three, you got to state what you learn from them. Um, so how you agree, what you learn from them, then and only then have you earned the right to criticize. Yes. And that's what the Socratic seminars are good for. You've got a dozen kids sitting in a circle and we're going through this and some kid will lay out their opinion on what that was. And they're trained to listen and part of their points come from civility. So I agree with so-and-so or so-on, but they also say, I disagree. And they even get to the point where I disagree strongly with so-and-so. And you know, the first time that said, the other kids all, <laughs> what's gonna happen? But they very quickly learned that this is how civil discussions are held. And you can even be passionate. We all walk away friends at the end. Mm -hmm. And then you're not going to learn something different that you didn't know. They're unknown unknowns. And sorry, but no one's omniscient. And we're all wrong on some things, every yeah. single one of us. And there are things we don't even know we don't know. So we need yeah. to listen. It's, it's not a circle of validation. We're not going to sit there and say everything that everybody said was lovely because it was your opinion. No, mm -hmm. that's not why we're here. We're yeah. here to sort out the wheat from the chaff. And someone can say, it's my opinion, aren't I justified, and so on and so forth. But, um, ooh, I missed. But I just hit myself on the head for folks <laughs> out there that can't see with a hard cut. And that is not an opinion. That is a fact. I don't care what anybody's opinion is. I just bunked myself in the head, and I have a little, like, mild um <laughs> like hit on my head now no concussion no mild concussion but just um yeah but um cool um have you seen any change in students through the decades like increase in capacity decrease things are just the same yeah, I love this question. Uh, <laughs> no, because 33 years in, and I remember being at five years in and so on and, and seeing those teachers that have been there for 35 years. Of course, I thought they were ancient. Um, I'm going to say no. I, to me, human nature does not change mm -hmm. in 30 years. It doesn't change in 300 years. Um, so mm -hmm. I could sit here and nitpick and pull out trends or fashions or this and that that kids do. But I really don't think it's a whole lot different than when I got in. Kids are kids. Humans are humans. Um, that's, to me, what's so good about studying this, especially from a historical perspective, is we find out that our problems are all the same. You know, we yeah, we got different technology. We have this and that. But the real problems are that of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And so... One of my favorite closing lines, um, I didn't mention this earlier, but I do a Socratic seminar on materialism and luxury. And there's this quote by Marcus Aurelius in which he says that one can live a decent life even in a palace. And they don't get that at first. And we're talking through it and like, well, palace life might not be that bad. I'm like, no, I'm sure it's pretty good. What does he mean by even? Right? Because that's the juxtaposition. 
And the whole point is, it's nice to have that stuff, but that's not what makes life good. If you're still miserable, you're just miserable in better surroundings. Mm -hmm. And then in some of those cases, if it's literally a palace, then, um, well, a castle, let's say, that kind of a palace for governmental purposes, then you got to worry about people trying to take you down, who's really your friend, who's not. You have money. People, so you have money. You have power. Why are people around you? And that is worrying. Maybe that's part of what Marcus Aurelius was talking about, too. What's well, true? Who, who's true? Who's not? Yeah, there's another quote in there about um, how most wealthy people are merely janitors of their possessions. Hmm. So if you have a $50,000 jeweled necklace, that's lovely. Where are you going to wear it? To yeah. the theater? once or twice a year, and then the rest of the time it's in a safe and you're worried about, is someone going to get it? Yeah. Or who was it? Um, was it a Roman emperor who had someone to walk behind him and whisper in his ear amidst the crowds, you are not a god, you are not a god, you are not a god? That was, was when the, uh, the conquering generals would come back to Rome. <clears throat> they would have a slave walk behind him saying that in his ear because here's the crowd right, is telling you you're everything and they don't want you to overthrow Rome. Yeah. I didn't know um, that was the reason for it, but yeah, there's, could get other yeah. lessons out of it as well. But what? Sorry. So this, uh, let me, I've got this other quote right here. Say I do. So that one about living in a palace, um, the other quote then that we close with is, Omar Khayyam, the 11th century poet, he says, I need a jug of wine and a book of poetry, half a loaf for a bite to eat. Then you and I, seated in a deserted spot, will have more wealth than a sultan's realm. And that kind of brings us full circle back to Epictetus, who talked about a feast is, uh, you know, some bread and a pot of cheese and good conversation. Right. That's really what life's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> cool. Okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some memorable successes and failures you've had through the decades? Uh, all right. Well, let's start with, you know, I've obviously had kids going to be PhDs, lawyers, doctors, etc. My favorite PhD story was kidney Michael Johnson, um, skinny, pale, white kid, extremely introverted, comes to philosophy club. He would say, hi, Michael. He would blush. You huh. know, one day, he's the only kid that shows up for philosophy club. And I'm not sure he's more nervous, him or me. <laughs> uh, but we managed to get through 45 minutes of conversation. And, you know, he was reading John Stuart Mill. And I was like, oh, is that for English class? He's like, no, just reading it. Oh, hmm. as sophomores do. <laughs> um, so he, with his AP credits, tests out of the first year and a half of college. Hmm. So he goes in as cool. a second semester sophomore, gets permission from the philosophy dean to start with junior level courses because he's already read everything that they oh. did in the first. So um, was going to go to Greece that summer to pick up Greek in wow. the summer so that he could read Plato in the original and uh, then he goes to Rutgers for his grad degree, which at the time was the number one philosophy department in the world, and got his PhD. I tracked him down. He's a 
last I saw was a visiting professor at Hong Kong University. And I pulled up some of his papers. I'm like, all right, I teach philosophy. I'm going to read some of these. Bro. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back to my Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was pretty high-level, hardcore stuff. What was he writing about? I, oh God, it was probably seven years ago I looked him up. Hmm. Yeah, it was just kind of abstract, high-level stuff. Cool. Um, But... I think, you know, as as much as I love those stories, it's just the average success. You know, you see some of these B and even C students who hit you up on LinkedIn or Facebook or email you a couple years later, and they're killing it. I mean, I've got multiple kids working for the NBA. Um, The the swimsuit issue for Sports Illustrated, the the first woman did that this last issue. She was my student. Hmm. I've got these kids out there. (laughs) doing all these amazing things. And yes, some of them were heavy hitters in high school, but this is what the average reasonably bright kid with a little motivation, a little pushing can go on to do some really neat stuff. Cool. Yeah. And for failures, um, well, okay. I need a spectacular story like the other one. So, one of the reasons I killed off the course the first go around. Serial murder or something. <laughs> FBI's most wanted. I've only had one. He could think so well, and he, they, the FBI blamed you. They came and interviewed him. Why did this guy think so well? Why did you teach him philosophy? Here's hard to catch. No. So. Uh, the one kid, uh, so he was one of the ones that wanted, you know, everything needed to be postmodern. And, like, I called on him in a Socratic seminar, and he, he just thinks he's more clever than you. And I'm like, dude, I've been teaching longer than you're alive. Yeah. You know, you're bright, but you're not. So he's like, well, I can't possibly ask, answer your question since words have no discerned meaning. Um, and I'm like, well, that's funny because you're answering the very question I asked you. So you apparently understood my words, you know, and I talked to his dad. His dad's a psychologist. He's like, yeah, he's out there. And what does um, no discernible meaning mean? If well, they have he, no discernible well, meaning. <laughs> yeah, with, with, uh, with his postmodern take, everything was relative and so on, except for you hit your head with a mug, right? Diamonds cut glass. That doesn't change regardless of culture. Um, anyway, so those kinds of kids aren't that fun. Most of them you can bring around. Some of them are just kind of jerky. Yeah, it's pretty um, sad. And then, yeah, again, some of the postmodern kids are like, you need to do more postmodernism and probably a fair critique. So maybe we'll get that way in a bit. Hmm. So what do you recommend to other people about, um, however you want to address it, parents? Like, what do you recommend to teachers about teaching philosophy, getting it in their schools, or parents to doing it or getting with their children or students uh, studying well, philosophy? What? Try and start it as a course if you're interested in it. Um, at my son's school, a private school, they, the English teacher had a PhD, and she taught it in the English department. Um, mm-hmm. As far as public schools, I think the absolute fastest way is through um, the social studies department because it tends to offer more electives than any other department. Mm-hmm. It is already a state title. That's mm-hmm. the most important thing. If it's not a state title with the state of Texas... Um, it's an act of Congress getting new titles. And, and this is how I got it started at this school I'm at now. Um, I asked them, because I was like, I taught this at my other school, is it possible? And she said, well, let me see if it's a state title. She looked it up and it was. 
And I said, well, what do we do now? She goes, I turn it on and boom, it's like flip a switch. It goes into the course catalog. And if you can get kids to sign up for it, it's a course. Cool. What do you recommend for teachers who want to teach it? Preparation, doing the course, all that, anything? Uh, read, 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 you know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, it, it, you know, the internet wasn't around when I started this or, or not usable in schools. We didn't even hardly have computers in schools outside the computer lab. So and then you had eight track tapes besides. Yeah. <laughs> I want to record my program, eight track tape, yeah. take it home I'm with me. I'm 107. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's so much easier now. Again, I just grab stuff offline from uh, professors and, and they have readings and, you know, and you just water it down for the length you want and the difficulty level. Really quickly, cassette tape, not A-track. A-track were the bigger things, I think. Yeah. Just little cassette tapes. I was a little kid, A-tracks, yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, so make sure you're prepared because understanding it, put it in context of history, interpretation. And, and last thing, don't be afraid to be wrong and don't be afraid to admit you don't know it. Because I know when I was young, I tried to know everything and have every answer. And, you know, that's a game you're going to lose. And it's um, important anyway. Jeez, it's like people yeah. need that skill of saying, I don't know. I yeah. was wrong. I mean, that's just a skill in well, itself. For example, in psych, I'm teaching Freudian psychoanalysis in psychology. And this kid, I mentioned it was the talking cure. And I don't know if I said Freud invented the talking cure or was known for. Kid raises his hand. He goes... Wasn't it Dr. Brewer who invented the talking cure? Now, when I was 26, I absolutely would have tried to talk myself out of that, right? And say, well, Freud, this and that. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and after class, I looked it up. And yes, Brewer was his mentor slash friend <laughs> from whom Anna O, that famous first case he had, he got, okay, maybe I knew that back in the day and just forgot it. Maybe I didn't. But the right answer is, I don't know. And that's one thing we need to do primarily in the schools because it's where we have an institution that prepares the youth for adult life and really is critical in the culture. People need to learn when they make a mistake, they don't know they're wrong, admit it. Thank you for helping me. That's why we're here. We're social animals. If we're just going to like ignore, like help, what the hell is it for? That's like contradicting being a social animal. It's not learning from other people. It's not appreciating. It's like, what the hell? When someone else makes a correction, say thank you. It helps us both. As people yeah. say, I stand corrected. Yeah. You know? It doesn't make you look dumb. It makes you look smarter. Yeah. And I, I sell the kids on that. And it's something we need so much in this world. Man, unfortunately. But yeah, um, I don't know. I'm wrong. We're going to figure it out. Um, sometimes I don't know. No one knows. If you figure it out, then everyone will be grateful to you. <laughs> but yeah. Um, any other last words or anything about philosophy, teaching it? Um, no, nah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. And you know, it's, it's almost a bit of self therapy as well along the way that you are reading these things, contemplating these things. And I get to do it every semester. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, it's so important. And there's no problem teaching it because philosophy is like, 
it's what human traditions, human thought, human wisdom. And it's like the stories people say, when are we ever going to use this and all that? And they want stories. They want connections. They want to be involved in human life. Well, that's what philosophy, real philosophy is all about. Yeah. Let's end it on what you just said. <laughs> because chemistry, calculus, you're going to use this every day the rest of your life. And it's a lie. You don't. Right? Other than Whatever. Things. I do. Yes. If they were okay. taught it right, they'd use it better. I There's so much they could get out of it. Ask that. But when are you going to use philosophy? Every day. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Amen. But for contrast, for the way chemistry and physics is taught, I'd agree. But if it was taught better and more correctly, um, no, there's so much. Just like geometry. The world we have, our society, some aspects of why it's better, we owe that to geometry. If it wasn't for geometry, we would not be here. Abraham Lincoln memorized all of Euclid's elements, and it made him a better thinker. And without that, he couldn't have become president. It's a thing that allowed him to become a better lawyer, better in, to succeed in politics, to be more persuasive and to write better, and to be true to reality. That's what he did. He studied Euclid's elements. So that's very important. That's something that should be brought up, too. Why don't we study this? Well, um... Do you want to be like Lincoln in some way or other? We can't all be as great and that make that momentous a change, but we can still, in our own world and in our own way, here and there, be just like that. And we should. But anyway, yeah. But sorry, I just like physics and chemistry, so I just had to, as you say in class, I just had to talk back. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. I mean, I can because I have free will, you know, but yeah. Any last words? Because I had some last words, so you should have last words. But yeah, philosophy, you need it. It's part of everyday life and wisdom and human traditions. So yeah. All right. Thank you, Scott. Awesome discussion. That was Enjoy. nice. Yeah. So you have a good rest of your day. Hope you get out and get some exercise. All right. Cool. Peace. Thank you. <laughs>